0: Good morning, welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Causey, I'm the lead pastor here. I'm so glad that you are here today. Uh, We're gonna be continuing this series that I've been super excited about. Um, It's a series that's tied to the Christmas story and kind of last week I started off with just showing you the nativity scene and kind of the plasticity of the chubby white people version that exists in my house with the little people one. And then hopefully you left last week with the sense that like there is more to the Christmas story than just chubby little white figurines that actually have nothing to do or looks nothing like the actual first Christmas story. That the first Christmas story was so powerful and has a lot to say about our story and how it intersects. That it really is this good news, this good tidings of comfort and joy that changes where you are and where I am. And so last week I kind of set the, the tone that I really want you to hear in the phrase Merry Christmas so much more than just simple holiday greeting, but that there's a war cry, there is a a call to a greater, higher hope and confidence. And that what I want to do today, over the next two weeks, actually, it's kind of a part A and a part B, is look at the Christmas story, and today I'm going to do it a little bit indirectly, you'll see next week why this is coming from the Christmas story. But I will look at the Christmas story and talk about how it intersects with our emotional and mental life. I don't know if you know this, but for almost two years now, we've been in a global pandemic. We've all been learning Greek letters and learning way too much about immune biology. We also have learned that our neighbors have a lot of opinions. Some of them are very ignorant, and some of ours are not ignorant, of course. And that we've learned all of this in the midst of the last two years And have watched our lives be upended. And in the course of that, we've had to confront one of the hardest people we have to live with. I think when you look back at the pandemic, what I think played out that is still playing out is that we were all forced when we were initially locked down to deal with the most difficult person in our life. It's not your kid. It's not your spouse. It's you you are the hardest person to live with. Especially when a lot of the things that trigger, that keep you distracted, that the, my proof text for why most of us were so ready to be distracted from our, ourselves is things like Tiger King became a thing that people watched. That was nothing more than how desperate we were to get away from this thing up here that we live with. That most of us had constructed lives that allowed us to ignore our thoughts, ignore our mental, emotional state, because our schedules and our streaming services kept us busy enough, kept us distracted enough that we didn't have to linger and sit in some of the stuff that stewed inside of our minds. And the reality is, is that even the Surgeon General this past week testified to that when they looked at Teens and anxiety and depression, and in many ways, kids are the canaries in the cave. They give us indications of what's coming, even if the rest of us aren't paying attention to it yet. And the fact that this pandemic has produced anxiety and depression and kind of observed levels in teenagers, I think is a warning sign for us that maybe we're dealing with something that if we leave unresolved is not going to leave us alone. And so to kind of take you on this journey over the next two weeks, I want to get very practical, um, but before I jump into the practicality of next week, I want to really jump into the paradigm of this week, because what we'll find next week in the Christmas story is some very set practices that actually fostered emotional and mental health that was healthy. But you have to recognize that was an operating system underneath those practices we'll look at next week. And it's those operating system that I want to look at today, this paradigm, this rhythm, that you and I can incorporate into our lives intentionally that can change our lives. And here's how I know. Um, even if you don't believe any of the stuff I'm about to teach you this morning, I know it can change your life. The reason I know that is because of a research project done by the University of Connecticut, an anthropologist there, who observed this very fascinating trend that was playing out in the second, intif- uh, intif- oh my goodness, I can't say the word right now, uh, the second interferonata, that is not the right way to say it, but my mind is blanking. So let me tell you what it is, and then the word will come to me like tonight at 3 a.m., and I'm going to sit up in bed, and I'm going to scream the word out, and my wife's going to have a heart attack, and I'll be like, that's how I was supposed to say it because I've said it 17 times this week. Um, anyways, from roughly 2000 to 2004 5 2005, uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict entered into a, a kind of a new level. Um, it was the most devastating life-wise, death-wise, injury-wise, because there was an introduction of suicide bombers. So the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that went from 2000 to 2004 is called that second word that I can't say right now. <laughs> and um, the thing that was interesting about that was the death rates because of the suicide bombers jumped drastically. About 4,000 people lost their lives. Um, some of them were kids, just foreigners. People just happened to be in public places where the suicide bombers would target. And there was a group of women in a city in um, Israel who adopted this practice that this anthropologist noticed, he, uh, they had this practice of daily reciting the Psalms. Now, you need to know these women uh, were secular Jews. They didn't believe in the Jewish faith. They didn't have a belief in God or any concept of God, but they recited regularly the Psalms. And what they found was in the aftermath of studying that this group of women... had this regular practice, uh, their anxiety levels were drastically different than the other women in the community, that these women were more comfortable going out shopping and riding buses and being in crowds, and the reason that was so significant was because suicide bombers were the primary means of kind of battle in this second kind of period of Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and that what he noticed, he couldn't actually quantify why. But I think the reason that these women had such a different response to what was playing out around them was that they were intuitively picking up on a pattern that was present in the Psalms, that was part of the operating system that we'll see next week was at work in the Christmas story, but that can work in your life this week. And to teach you that, I want to actually kind of make it a little bit more intentional. I want to tease out the pattern that's present in a lot of the Psalms. That you have to realize before we jump into it, Psalms were just an ancient Jewish form of songs in the modern age. Uh, the biggest songwriter, psalm writer in Jewish history was a guy named David. David was known for killing Goliath and being a great warrior, but he was also a man who was incredibly emotionally, mentally attuned, and wrote some very moving songs and had. Powerful poetry that still exists today and still brings comfort to people all around the world almost three thousand years later. And David had a rhythm when he wrote, a rhythm that allowed him to cover all types of emotional experiences. If you read through the Psalms, they cover the full gamut of the human experience. And today I want to take you to a Psalm that is um, found inside of the Book of Psalms. It's one that is uh, famous, and that it's. Poetry is really moving, but I want to get to those parts. I want to focus on the last two verses, and if you don't have a Bible with you, I'm going to actually have it on the screen because I want you to see the subtlety of what's playing out because in the subtlety is the paradigm that we can practice to experience emotional and mental health. So, um, in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, you find this prayer at the end of the song. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He concludes this song with this prayer. And I think it's because David understood something that you and I oftentimes don't think about. The concept is called metacognition. It's about thinking about your thoughts. It's Not something that naturally most of us do, but it was something that David, whether it was intuitive or whether he had learned intentionally from some family or some portion of his religious faith that was embedded inside of him, David understood the value of metacognition, of thinking about his thoughts. Um, I was reminded of that this week. My daughter was asking me uh, about my most traumatic memory that I've ever had which is a very strange thing to talk to me about as she's going to bed. It's an even stranger thing that I said, of course I'll talk about my most traumatic memory right before you fall asleep, sweetie, because I love you. And so I began to talk about my most traumatic memory. Um, It was when I was 10 years old, and I was playing hide-and-seek with a group of friends of mine. We were out in a huge kind of forested area, and um, you need to know that I'm not a very competitive person, but if there is any sector or sport that I wish I could go professional in it would be hide-and-seek like I don't know what it is about me I've never sat down with a counselor to understand it fully but I love some hide-and-seek I loved hide-and-seek then and I can tell you quite honestly I still love hide-and-seek now if you want to invite me over to your house and say hey I got a crazy idea let's play hide-and-seek I'm going to say yep What's the rules? Okay, how long do we get? And you're going to see me do some stupid things. Case in point, uh, a a couple years ago, uh, we were playing with kids because kids are a perfect way that I can manifest my ability to play hide-and-seek without anyone knowing. And so we had some of the cousins, and they were like, let's play hide-and-seek. And And I was like, yes, let's play hide-and-seek. And Jenny, you're it. And then we're all hiding, right? And so I'm looking around the house, and I see behind the couch that there is this perfect space. And a problem with me is I'm a lot like a chihuahua, like I don't have a really good representation of my body size. And so I attempt to wedge myself into this very confined space behind the couch and I am so happy because I think no one is ever going to find me. And I have shoved myself shoehorn style into the back of this couch and I'm never coming out, so it doesn't matter anyway, right? And I'm in there, my wife walks into the room and I'm like chuckling, like some tiny little school girl because I think I have the best spot and none of these seven-year-olds are ever going to be finding me. And while I'm sitting there, Jenny looks over and she's like, I see you, Chris. <laughs> and I was like, no. And she just looks at me because now I have to get out because what happens when you get caught? And so I begin to worm myself out, which takes like five minutes. And she was like, what were you thinking like, you were obviously right there. Like, why did you jam yourself in that hole? And I'm like, because hide and seek is my life passion, woman. That's why, okay? So it, it goes back to when I'm 10 years old, and I love it. And I hear my neighbor coming around, so I dive into the bushes so I can't be seen. And when I do, I land on a bumblebee's nest. Now, you need to know that hornets aren't the only thing in the ground. Bumblebees are true. I don't know if you've ever seen a, a bumblebee, but they... The Defy physics because they're fat little chubby bees that somehow fly with little tiny wings. It's really creepy. I know that they are chubby with little tiny wings because when I screamed, I was swarmed by them. See, when I landed, one stung me, and that triggered a party, and they all decided to show up instantaneously on my 10-year-old body. They covered me completely, and as I was screaming, they were trying to climb in my mouth, climb in my nose, and I could see them climbing across my eye. And all I could do was freeze. I told you this was traumatic. This is what I was telling my daughter right before bed. It's awesome. And, um, and so, like, I'm screaming, and my brother comes, and he beats them off of me. And what that does psychologically for me is that introduces me to an obsession that would last for decades. Um, also to uh, a really traumatic um, allergen so that if I ever got stung by them, I'd have to be hit with an EpiPen because my body would try to kill me in response to that bee sting. But here's what's fascinating about bees. I don't know if you've ever, remember, I was obsessed with them for decades. I've finally worked through my fear, so now I can actually stand around a bunch of bees. But at some point, I would push my children out of the way. I would sacrifice them to get away from bees. That's how, like on my honeymoon, I've said this before, on my honeymoon, walking into the cabin, a bee flew. I pushed my wife into the bushes, and I ran into the house. Like, I'm not joking. It was traumatic. But um, I've worked through that. I'm good now. I can hang out with bees and we get along. But here's one of the cool things about bee stingers. is This is a hypodermic needle under an electron microscope. This is a bee stinger under an electron microscope. I mean, it's serrated. You, it's made to go in and stick and rip and tear. Like, this thing is terrifying. And I think that David understood... That our negative thoughts are a lot like a bee stinger. That they can get into us and they can hook in any attempt to move. They go deeper and deeper and deeper and they can live underneath the surface because they've gone so deep that we don't even think about them anymore. We don't even process through the memories that formed and forged us. And David, in his wisdom, understood that we have to think about our thoughts. And so at the end of this beautiful song, he says to God, right, God, help me, search me, know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. The word test there is an interesting word because it literally means it's it's a call out from how you would purify metals, which was through turning up the heat and cooking them and it would draw out the impurities that you didn't even know were there. He was saying to God, God, I know that there are things inside of my thoughts underneath the surface that have gotten stuck and barbed in like that bee stinger that I'm not even aware is there. Turn up the heat. Make me aware that it is there. And he says, my anxious thoughts It's uh, the disquieting stuff, the things that, like, you can't seem to get rid of. They become the background noise. But see, the problem with human beings is that if you've ever lived beside a road or a train track or in a city or had a noise machine on in a room with a small child, you know that the human brain can literally tune out things that are constant and always there. And you don't even know. The sound is there until you turn it off or someone else turns it off. And David's saying, God, purify, draw out those things that I have accepted that I'm not even aware of. And the first thing that David does in this rhythm is is he's intentionally looking in to his thought life, which is something that most of us feel the waves and the wake of the disquieted thoughts but we never actually stopped to look at them and to notice what they are. And the first part of that rhythm that David embodied, the first thing that was present in the Psalms is there was this intentional looking in to the mental and the emotional thought processes that were going on underneath the surface. He was aware that they were there. And that by becoming aware they're there, by bringing them up to the surface, being able to observe them, it put him in a position Do the very next thing, which was as they rose to the surface, he said, See if there's any offensive way in me. Now, this word offensive way is fascinating because it's not offensive in the way that uh, you would think is like, Oh, that you know, smell is offensive. This had a, a moral component to it. What he's really saying is, See if there are any lies in me, any sins within me, things that. Do not line up with who God is and what God says that I have believed. See if there are any lies living in me. What David understood was that lies like that bee stinger can get barbed in deep and we forget they're even there and we just live with the despair that they cause. Now, what's fascinating, the reason I love the Bible I didn't become a Christian until college, and so I had a lot of skepticism about faith, about the Christian faith specifically, especially about a book written thousands of years ago that somehow has some type of relevance or importance for everyday life. I read Shakespeare, and I can tell you, when I couldn't even understand Shakespeare, and it's only 500 years old. So the idea for me, especially as someone who was um, being trained as a scientist, that a book written 3,000 years ago could actually have any significance in my life um, was just absurd to me. And one of the things that happened after I became a Christian was I began to stand in awe of the Bible. I read a lot. Um, Reading is how I refresh my mind. Um, It's one of those things that recharges me in the way that you have things that recharge you. And one of the things that um, I notice frequently is how oftentimes what is new and breakthrough and like earth shattering or I listen to people whether it's an HBS article or whether it's some study coming out of some prestigious university in sociology or psychology or fill-in-the-blank-ology, and they'll have like, we've just discovered this thing. And people are like, oh, my goodness, can you believe they just discovered this thing? And then I'm like, I read that thing in my Bible last week. That thing is not new. That's an old thing that the Bible talked about 3,000 years ago. Case in point, what David understands is that one of the, the roots that produces the fruit of unhealthy thinking is lies. And in 1976, Aaron, Beckett, Aaron Beck um, created what was called the cognitive negative triad. And he basically was able to distill the same pattern that underneath the fruit of unhealthy mental and emotional life was a set of three different lies that often were either working together or were present um, in in one form or another. And he essentially said the three lies that are underneath the surface is a lie about you, that I'm worthless, I hate myself, that I'm less valuable. You hear this lie even manifest in the mouths of little kids when they say things like I'm just stupid or I'm worthless or a three- or four-year-old saying I'm a bad kid, right? That This lie about you. Then there's a lie about your world. That's the second one of the negative triads that he discovered. And it's this idea that the world doesn't care about me. And the world can represent your family. The world can represent your coworkers. The world can represent some significant other in a relationship if you've ever walked through a divorce or a horrible breakup, right? Like it's a lie that comes from your world, that's about your world. I don't matter. No one wants to be my friend. No one cares about me. Sometimes those laws, those lies are are explicitly said to you, and sometimes those lies implicitly creep in. Maybe you're a middle school kid or you're a fifth grader, and, and you just don't feel like you fit in, and you can't seem to find a friend. And one of the lies that you can pull from that is that, well, nobody cares about me. Nobody wants to be my friend. So this is how it works. It can be implicit. No one ever had to teach you. You just kind of absorbed it and adopted it. And then the third lie is a lie about your future. And it's that things will never get better. Things are never going to change. This past week, I lost a former student to suicide. And this was the lie underneath the surface. It's just the sense that things are never going to get better. I'm always going to live in this dark place, in this sad place. And this lie creeps in, and it can be about our job. It can be about our marriage. It can be about our relationships. It can be about our finances. But I would argue, without ever sitting down to hear most of the lies you believe, that what Aaron... Beck discerned is 100% accurate and true about you and me. That at the root of the negative thoughts that are present in your life and in my life, they're rooted in one of three areas. It's either a lie about you, a lie about your world, or a lie about your future. But this was something that David understood because he wrote Psalm 139, not in 1976, after Aaron Beck discovered the cognitive triad. He wrote Psalm 139, about 3,000 years ago, with an awareness that there are lies that are present. Now, what's been done that's really helpful since 1976 is others have built on this concept of the cognitive triad, the negative triad, and and now there are about 15 different labels that exist of different negative thought patterns that come out of this. There are about 15 different patterns or permutations, computations of these three lies and I want to send them to you this week. Um, I don't have time in this message to walk through all 15, but I would argue that if you sit down with them this week and you look at those 15, you can probably identify one or two or maybe even three of the lies that you oftentimes fall into the trap of believing. And it's in one of these 15 or maybe four or five of these 15 that most of your struggles are there. And if you can just start to become aware of not just looking in and noticing them. You're looking out for the lies, right? So David's like, God, help me to look in to see my thoughts, to become aware of what's in there. But then help me to look out for the lies that are in there, that are working against me, that are the, the hooks and the traps and the nets that hold me back in my life. And that I want to make sure you get that. And we've had so many people who've come to Encounter Church over this last year, last week, One of the things that's even been fascinating is we actually have more people online every single week watching this church on Sundays than we have sitting in this room right now because of the pandemic. And so we've seen about 50 first-time people walk through the doors um, and just in person, and we've seen more than that online. And I recognize that we don't have most of your emails. And so I'm going to send this thing out, and I want to make sure you get it. And so um we've created this website, encounterchurch.com forward slash email. And if you if you don't get weekly emails from us, um, then I want I want you to go here because we send them out. And and if you do get emails already, then I still want you to go here because we actually have a new system that we're working on that we'll be rolling out that has um, some some nuances to it and some specialties that we're really excited about that is going to allow us to even better communicate. But in order to roll out that new system, we actually need you to do something internally for us. And so you go to that email, go to encounterchurch.com forward slash email. It'll take about 30 seconds. Fill out what you're interested in. Um, Then this week, around Wednesday, Thursday, you'll actually get all 15 of the predominant lies that most of us struggle with. And I think it will be incredibly helpful for you. All right. But I want you to notice that he doesn't just say, God, point out the lies. He then moves and he says, and lead me in the way everlasting which is an interesting way to end his prayer. He's like, God, I know there are so many lies there. Help me to follow the truth. Now, I haven't given you any of the rest of Psalm 139, but I think this is what's really fascinating to me. David, who is the most prolific writer of songs and psalms in the Old Testament, who writes words that literally, under the Spirit of God guiding him, our words of truth that we still read and reflect on almost 3,000 years later is asking God to help him spot the lies and believe the truth. Now, here's crazy. Right before he writes this, he says, I praise you because I am fearfully. Verse 14, 15, all right? I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Aaron Beck's. Cognitive triad, all three of those lies. In these two, like four verses, David explicitly speaks a truth that dissects and disarms all three of those lies. The lie about you, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The lie about your world, not caring. No, God, you see me when I sit down and when I rise. You you saw me when I was being formed. Like you care, you think about me. And my future, it will never get better. God, you know every single day of my life before it comes to pass. You hold, I am precious to you. Here is a man who disarms in just four verses every one of the lies in the cognitive triad. And yet, and yet, he's still crying out to God, help me not believe the lies. I think that should tell you and me something. But if the man who could write truth and literally write words that some of us need to read regularly to fight against the lies that we believe, struggle with believing lies, then it means that all of us are going to struggle with the same thing. And that what David is doing is he is crying out and he is fighting. I don't know if you heard about this this past week, but there was a 70-year-old woman in Massachusetts named Donna who was uh, working on putting her Christmas lights up. And, um, and as she was doing it, she heard something she thought was a, a sound of a car coming by. And she looked, and she kept back, back to the lights, and then out of nowhere, a 45-pound raccoon leapt on her and began to attack her. Okay? Like, and was going at and and she, she described... In her Facebook post, this is an actual picture from her Facebook post um, of the hoodie she was wearing when she got attacked. Um, That The raccoon was yelling, and she was yelling, and the raccoon was like lit into her, and she's trying to fight this 45-pound raccoon off of her. And she finally gets it into a neck lock. And she begins to squeeze and squeeze. And she talks about hearing the bones pop and hearing them crack. And it's screaming louder and then screaming louder. And she's pulling harder and harder. And then it finally lets go. And she drops it. And the 45-pound raccoon walks off. She's like, Phew. Now, naturally, everyone's like, that raccoon was clearly rabbit. <clears throat> because it just attacked you. But what we were able to later figure out was that it was actually just a Buffalo Bills fan um, who was still bitter about last week's game, and she was wearing her Patriots hoodie, and so that's, that's actually what went down. But the point of that is avoid Buffalo Bill raccoon fans. But specifically, <laughs> the bigger point is I think what this woman does when she gets attacked by that raccoon, I would have wept myself. Right, But she like, well, I'm going to get this thing in a necklock. And she locks A 70-year-old woman puts the thing in a necklock. Look at the holes, the teeth marks in this thing. And she is fighting for her life and Chah! like going, oh, Jack Bauer on that raccoon. Straight up like, I will snap your neck and you walk off. And I think she had the tenacity that David is crying out to God with that you and I have to cry out to God with. To say, God, help me fight for truth because it is so easy to believe the lies. And if David could struggle with that, then you and I are going to struggle too. And that what we need to do as our operating system is to look in and to look out for the lies. And what David, the reason David could look in, become aware, and never despair about the constant struggle with the lies, is that David, in the midst of this broader sweep of this psalm, ultimately rooted his life in looking up. That David understood that there is good news for those who struggle. That there is a God who is for them and with them. And David writes this 3,000 years ago without any of the awareness of ultimately what we will know today. As we celebrate Christmas, we know that God is with us and for us. Because hope was here. That hope is here. That is the central message of the Christian story, is that God stepped into our story so it didn't have to stay the same story. That truth arrived so that we could be set free from the power of lies. That the beauty of the Christmas story is that God is with us, for us, and that the truth walks in a way and that light is shined in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. That's what we celebrate every single Christmas. And by looking in and looking out, But that very essential foundational last step of always looking up and allowing truth to keep us grounded, to keep us focused, to be that compass that's always pointing us north, even when it's dark. To realize, like my daughter and I were talking about yesterday, driving around and it was raining. She was like, Daddy, above the clouds, is the sun shining bright right now? I was like, yep, sweetie, it's actually my favorite thing about flying on rainy days is the moment when the rain disappears and you break above the clouds and you realize the sun is shining bright and the sky is blue. Like that's what God does for us in the Christmas story. Is that no matter how dark, no matter how kind of dreary or desperate it may feel, the sun, the S-O-N, is still shining. And that light, no darkness can overcome it. And that's why it's good news. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the good tidings of great joy, of the life change that it produces in us and through us. I pray, Father, for wisdom and discernment for us, courage and confidence for us. To be able to look in and to look out for the lies and to look up for the truth. Thank you that the story that we may find ourselves in doesn't have to be the story that we stay in. Thank you that you're writing a better story and help us to stand in faith and in trust, believing that and confident in that. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. I want to say thank you. I I, I love.